All right, so we're going to start on chapter 2B today. The series is What in God's Earth is the Kingdom of Heaven? Uh, some purposeful words there. I want to remind us that the earth belongs to the Lord, not to the kingdoms of this world, nor to the devil or anything like that. And what God's goal is, according to Roman numeral one there, our theme verse, Matthew six ten is to bring his kingdom to the earth now as it is in heaven. That's, uh, that is actually the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of walking with Christ in terms of it, your missional purpose. And that is not understood by our day and age, which is the, which is the reason why uh, we have two phenomena going on worldwide. One is in Western culture, what in Europe, uh, in North America, Canada and the United States of America, Christianity is declining so much that it looks like it's going to disappear. They say only about one in four, or I'm sorry, four in 10, uh, about 40% of, of people under, under uh, uh, age 30 even go to church. And it looks, it kind of looks as if, uh, or no, I, I believe it's actually four in a hundred that, 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 yeah, 4% of, of my bad. I was knowing my figures weren't coming out right there in my head, but 4% of people under 30 are attending church in America today. So based on that calculation, 20 years from now, we'll be where Europe is around 4% of Europeans go to go to a Christian church of any kind, and estimates are that less than half of those uh, have any are have any actual faith that's beyond what you would call nominal faith or faith in name only. And uh, that seems to be uh, the the problem in Western culture. In many of the other cultures of the world, South America, Central America, Africa, Southeast Asia. Um, the gospel and the church is exploding in numbers, but for the first time in history with little impact on the culture. And that is also a result of not understanding the basic message of the kingdom of God in the Bible, which is the central theme of all of Scripture. Uh, but most, again, most Christians think that it has something to do with going to heaven instead of what it really has to do with. Now, Chapter two, I got about halfway through the, that this last week, and I am going to uh, step back this far so I can see these clocks, and I'm going to uh, try to uh, just quickly review a little bit of what we said. But if you look on the back of your outline at the bottom of the back page, you'll see the 14 titles we're going to be covering. Your, your outlines are in your bulletin. Please make sure everyone has an outline. And uh, this... <laughs> Chapter two is the is the uh, chapter that the whole series gets its title from. What in God's earth is the kingdom of heaven? I'm trying to start each chapter with a question uh, leading up to its title. And so the title after what in, in, in God's earth is the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom defined. So what we're doing uh, last week and today is we're, we're reading 12 statements that together form a collage or a mosaic in order for us to understand what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We pointed out that Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven because his respect for the Jews' respect of not using God's name. But when Matthew says the kingdom of heaven, he means exactly what all the other writers of scriptures mean when they say the kingdom of Christ 
or the kingdom of God or the kingdom of, of God our Father and Jesus Christ and so forth. So uh, then we made a, we also, uh, on chapter one, we went through various sections of scriptures to show that this is the central, comprehensive, overriding, or dominant theme of all scripture. And it's the progressive unveiling of the King of Kings in his present comprehensive yet expanding reign. So let's get into this again. We got through about six of these statements last week, and um, I'm going to review the first one. The kingdom of God is the reign, government, rulership of God. It is that sphere or realm in which his good and perfect will is willingly enacted, not only as in heaven, but on the earth now. Now, it's important to understand God owns the whole earth. God has enemies that, don't, that do not will to do his will. Okay? And even those enemies do his will. But when we're talking the kingdom of God, we're talking about those people who've been born again into Jesus Christ, who've partnered and membered themselves with churches who are trying to bring about God's will on earth. And we're going to get into what God's will is, but just as a foreshadowing, God's will is always reconciliation to himself, redemption, the restoration of all things that were damaged by the fall of man in every sphere of human activity. Around 150 years ago, the church began to embrace a kind of a dualistic worldview, a neoplatonic worldview, it's called, or pietistic worldview, where the goal of Christianity was to get people to pray a sinner's prayer and punch a ticket to go to heaven uh, and and pretty much leave this world alone. So we're, we're just trying to get people to be okay when they die. Uh, that is not the goal of the Bible. That is not biblical Christianity. And uh, that will lead to the church being overrun by the culture. God's will is is to restore all things in every area of human endeavor, not just in some internal uh, sense of making your character righteousness and so forth, but in terms of restoring families, in terms of restoring uh, the business world, in terms of restoring all things to the glory of God. So statement two, that the kingdom of God is both present and future. It's not primarily heaven or the age to come. But it's a breaking into this present evil age of the power, order, spirit, and reign of the kingdom now and on earth. Now, any view of the kingdom that you read, such as George Eldon Ladd or whoever, Rush Dooney, doesn't matter who you're reading. Any view of the kingdom will say that the kingdom is both present, that is now, and it's not fully manifested now, so the kingdom is future However, throughout church history, there have been various ways of thinking about how much it's supposed to be present now versus how much is left to the future. And wherever the gospel and the church has, has worked redemptively, uh, leading people to Christ, changing business, uh, bringing freedom, ending slavery, uh, a thousand social issues, building hospitals, uh, ministering to the untouchables in, in India, where, where, wherever the church has, has done its mission well, 
there's been an expectation that the kingdom of God was present in Christ and that when John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, that's a metaphor for saying it's now, it's near, it's in your midst. And that was both John the Baptist and Jesus opening lines of their ministry. The first thing Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is now. It's in your midst. It's actually in me. I'm the king of the kingdom, Jesus is saying. I'm here now, and I'm going to begin to reconcile all things to myself and restore everything. And so what happens whenever the church loses that sense, the church begins to retreat into irrelevancy. Today, most of Christianity is what we do on Sunday mornings behind church walls. But what we do on Sunday mornings behind church walls is supposed to train, teach, and equip us to bring the kingdom of God into our families, to bring the kingdom of God into our studies at school, uh, to honor Christ by the excellency of what we do, to bring the kingdom of God into our business practices to bring the kingdom of God into our art and our music. So whenever there's more of an emphasis on the now aspect of the kingdom, the gospel, the church, and Christian culture has advanced to the benefit of the world. The king, kingdom is uh, does not have some discontinuous... Uh, teeter-totter, fulcrum point that changed completely when Christ came, God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The purpose of the people of God is to bless the people around you. Unfortunately, through like the prosperity gospel, we have the most self-centered, narcissistic views of Christianity today. Your call as a Christian is to... Uh, be in family with, be in community with a group of Christians who are pouring out their lives as a drink offering for the sake of those who need what we have, which is Christ. So, and the emphasis on that in Scripture is now. Now, uh, I'm going to, I can't review all six. I'm going to get, jump down to... Uh, uh, I think it's number five. I want to exp jump, jump down to number five. God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests. Now, almost everything in the kingdom of God is counterintuitive to what you thought when you became a Christian. And it's kind of a, a, a tough time right now because in our very what they some people are calling our radical radically individualistic culture with uh, there's an opinion poll on everything text your opinion of this and that and there's actually kind of this idea that truth is the majority opinion or something when you know the majority opinion of the supreme court said that black people were three-fifths of a person in eight in 1860 and guess what? The majority opinion was completely wrong. And one of the scariest things about our culture is as we've declined in our reading skills and as we've dropped classes like logic and logical thinking and the ability to think in presuppositional axiomatic ways and, and we become 
uh, epistemologically unconscious. In other words, most people are not even that clear about what the, where they're getting their values and so forth. If you ask the average college student today, should we not oppress women? They would say, yes, we must be about women's rights. But if you ask them why, they don't have any philosophical or theological basis for that. And if, uh, if they only knew, because they've only, we have a very ethnocentric culture right now where people only know American opinions that are taught in American schools, you need a deeper answer than we, we shouldn't oppress women. The reason you need a deeper answer is because that's the minority opinion worldwide. It happens to be the right opinion, but if you don't know why, you'll make no progress in making that the majority opinion. I rarely meet a Christian today who knows that the, one of the biggest criticisms of the early church was their high view of womanhood. And they were considered a woman's liberation movement by the Romans. And the Romans hated the Christians because they said, your wife is of equal value in you, of you, with you in Christ. The Romans did not like to hear that because they considered their wife's property uh, in the same way they did their beast of burden and so forth and treated them about the same. And they had no rights in the courts, no rights to inherit, uh, and they were looked as a sexual object to be owned and controlled. Well, Jesus came to set that right. That's why he spoke to the woman at the well. That's why he first appeared after his resurrection to women that had been his followers. Now, if, they, if he had actually appeared to anyone else, they would not have made that uh, a point in the Gospels because in the Gospels they were, they were very uh, strictly understanding that God is a God of history and he has acted in history by sending his son born of a woman in the flesh and we cannot alter the history. If they had wanted to make their point more legally, they would have made up a myth that he appeared to the men first. So, um, back to statement number five. God's predestined purpose has always been and remains to produce a kingdom of priests. I got myself sidetracked there by talking about how the kingdom is counterintuitive and, and giving a couple examples of that. You wouldn't think that the most important ministry is to be a priest. But every person born again of God in Christ Jesus is born of our high priest Jesus, and you are a priest called to make spiritual sacrifices unto him, worship, prayer, intercession. And in fact, that is the foundation that we do ministry upon. And that... Uh, we're taught in more, uh, modern times, if you want to change something, change government. And God is all, all about changing the government, but as we'll see in uh, chapter uh, 6, the seven inevitable institutions, God's way of changing the government has nothing to do primarily or little to do with changing the civil government. Because a civil government can pass all kinds of laws for social justice. I am thankful for William Wilberforce. 
I'm thankful for the Quakers, the abolitionist movement that led to the abolition of slavery, not only in America, but worldwide slavery is illegal. But because Christianity has actually retreated quite a bit worldwide since then, slavery is a bigger issue today than it was then. And there are more people being held against their will to serve Ill, greedy, despicable uh, profit masters than there ever has been. It's a thing called human trafficking. And so you can't just change the world by changing governmental laws. It has to, you, you have to rethink this stuff. If you really care, you have to think, think deeper. You have to study some things. So uh, God is predestined purpose has always been and remains to, to produce a kingdom of priests born of, filled with, and extending the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. One of our problems today is that the church is almost devoid of the activity of the Holy Spirit everywhere. It's not enough to have a theoretical theology that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is present in, in the communion or the Holy Spirit is this. We need the actual power of the Holy Spirit to change lives. We have many vestiges. If you uh, look at any of the ancient traditions, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutheran, which really saved a lot of things from Roman Catholicism after it broke off, uh, Anglicanism, and of course the Roman Catholic Church, you, they all have a, an ordinance, a sacrament called confirmation. Confirmation is supposed to be when uh, an apostolic figure or uh, an elder, a shepherd of the church, the word bishop episco uh, comes from episkopos, which was just one of the elders of local churches in the New Testament, lays hands on people and they receive the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that their life is supernaturally changed. They're, they're engrafted into a deeper understanding of why I need to be a part of a body of Christians and let, be less radically individualistic and more uh, community-centered and more under the authority of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the, and the proper leadership in His church. And you're supposed to be empowered to have a spiritual prayer language to pray to God in, called glossolalia or speaking in tongues. Upon, after that, you're supposed to be empowered to manifest various spiritual gifts. Your worship should be deeper. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So your, your uplifting of the Lordship of Christ should, go, should, should be more intimate, more real to you. Um, your hunger for his word, because the spirit and the word always go together. You should develop a ravenous hunger for God's word, whereby you actually get hungry enough to push some of the other things out of our busy, hectic lives and actually find time to study it and so forth. And you should start moving in things like speaking forth on behalf of God in, with an anointing in certain situations, which is called prophecy. And you should see healings and deliverance and so forth. You know, one of the things you have to come to grips with if you're going to be a Christian, either Jesus is Lord and he did everything right or, 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 we, or the Gospels are all wrong. But Jesus spent 25% of his ministry casting out demons, 
in a culture that was much more godly than ours. And almost every Christian ministry mission of Roman Catholic or Protestant testifies that when we go to cultures like Africa and Central and South America, we heal the sick and cast out demons and have spiritual gifts. When we come back to North America to, to raise money, we don't talk about that stuff. But, uh, and that's one of the reasons why we emphasize you know, the, the, ever since the Enlightenment, there is a paradigm or a worldview in, in Western culture that says that if you believe in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, if you believe in spiritual things, you must be an idiot because science has disproved all that. But that's what's called an a priori conclusion or a postulate or an axiom that can't be proved. It is not necessarily true, and it's not really based on any evidence. It's just a leap of faith for them. It's a leap of doubt. And we can study, you know, uh, I, one of the things we require every person moving toward leadership in our church to do is study the three major views of Christian counseling through the centuries. Because what's kind of interesting is the since the Enlightenment, the assumption is that if you're really believing biblical and Christian things, you must be kind of stupid. But the truth is, the church is, the, is what championed education through the centuries. The church is who sent the, the monks and, and the nuns and so forth into Europe to build uh, monasteries and begin to teach the barbarians how to read and how to study in the great works of both the Judeo-Christian Hebrew and Christian heritage, as well as the Greco-Roman heritage. The church preserved and advanced education, and through, throughout most of the centuries, the greatest philosophers and theologians were Christians. Now, 150 years ago, the church began to develop some ideas that made Christianity anti-intellectual, and that has played into the whole Enlightenment thing that that you're supposed to be not very smart. But the truth is, you're, if, you're supposed, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to move in miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit and be very well educated in both the knowledge of Babylon and Egypt and Rome, that is the humanistic anti-Christian world, and in terms of the Bible and the things of the Christian world. Now, again, so we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests born of, filled with, and extending the manifest presence of the Spirit. Together, we are supposed to be God's temple built according to his pattern and overflowing with his glory in demonstrable ways, or demonstrable it's sometimes pronounced. Romans 14, 17 says the kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, know that the kingdom of God has come in your midst. The kingdom of God is wherever the Spirit of God is changing lives for real, uh, I've been having a lot of Bible studies with people lately that have been Christians in the sense of going to church, uh, in the sense of uh, doing some, some forms of Christian disciplines, but have never really been changed from the inside out about Jesus Christ and have never understood the basics of the gospel and become a new creation and uh, began to treat the people at work different and their wife different and their kids different and so forth. Happens all the time. We have uh, four or five Bible studies on Thursdays 
with people who've had some exposure to Christianity, but have never been taught any of the core ideas. Had a Bible study this week with someone just talking about uh, the doctrine of the incarnation, which you would get out of reciting the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and they had no idea about the doctrine of the incarnation. They had, had gone to church all their lives, really involved in their church, and said, was Jesus always God? And some qu like questions like that. And did he become God when he became to earth? Or was he always man? Or did he become man when he came to earth? And, and that... Uh, I don't mind any kind of question. They're, all questions are good questions. However, the church used to do a catechism process whereby people would have known that growing up even before God got a hold of their lives and their hearts. Now, number six, ultimately all of God's actions, movements, and works, and dealings, in other words, whatever God's doing in your life and in our lives, and in the people you minister to. All of God's actions, movement, works, and dealing are designed to produce that nation, that is that people, that city set on a hill, and work in and through it to subdue the entire earth in the, in the Bible's version of subdue, which means to serve them so that, you, so that they willingly, the Bible says we love because he first loved us. Paul describes himself in both Romans and Philippians, at the beginning of his letter, before he tells them he's an apostle, he says, Paul, the bond slave of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I'm in love with Jesus so much that I consider myself his table waiter. And my life is about pouring out my life to do whatever my Lord wants me to do on behalf of his people and his purposes. That's the posture all, every Christian is called to. So God wants to work in and through that nation to serve the entire earth, bless the entire earth, bring them, liberate them under his kingdom. According to the Bible, people are under a government. Colossians 1.13, Paul says, he transferred you from the domain of darkness. The reason people have addictions, the reason people have fears, the reason people can't keep their relationships together in our culture and so forth, as our culture has gotten more ungodly, the more and more ungodly, the more and more social and cultural impact there is. And unfortunately, we've had a kind of Christianity that doesn't disciple people where they live to live better. I don't want to harp on this all the time, but, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in a neighborhood with 101 houses. I was the paper boy. I knew every family. And there were no divorced couples. Now, we need to be very clear here it's on social issues. If, you know, if you have a sexual addiction, if you've, uh, if you've uh, gone through abortions, if you've whatever, if you rob banks, if you, uh, if you have troubles, that's what Grace Christian Fellowship is all about. We, our slogan is acceptance where you are. I remember in, in Bowling Green in the campus ministry, a, a young lady who became Catherine's roommate at one point. Uh, I remember holding her in my arms as she wept and wept and wept because she had gotten pregnant and her parents had pressured her very deeply to have an abortion and she came to Christ a couple weeks later, and she began, and she was totally devastated by, by the grief and the loss of it. 
many of you who are active in the pro-life store movement know hundreds of stories like that. So the issue is we're not, we're not, in our society, you have to be careful because we've actually, C.S. Lewis talks about this even as early as the 1950s, we've become a society where love is the acceptance and affirmation of all lifestyles, all behavior, and so forth. And love is the acceptance of all people, no matter what their lifestyle is. That's a different thing. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, and he, she, he said, go bring your husband. And she said, I have no, don't have a husband. And he said, you've cr- spoken correctly. You've had five husbands up till now, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. Yet he continued to minister to her. He didn't say, therefore, we want nothing to do with you. On the contrary, therefore, I've come to save you. Therefore, I've come. Now, you can't restore the consequences of all things, but you can bring forgiveness. You can bring a new direction, a new life. You can bring everything that the gospel offers, that Jesus will give you a new life completely. You know, before I came to Christ, most of you know I was a drug addict. It was just so lost on drugs that it was my whole life, every day, all day, and so forth. And I'm looking forward to this Thanksgiving, which will be 40 years since I last did drugs. I'm at 39 years and a half at this point, and that's a good head start. So it's a few steps in the right direction. So ultimately, number six, all of God's actions, movements, works, and dealings are designed to produce that nation and work in and through it to serve, bless, subdue the whole earth. God's view of government is that Jesus is a liberator when you come under his government, You come out of the domain of darkness, and darkness wants to hurt you. According to the Bible, there are three enemies of God, our sinful nature, the world system, and there is a demonic kingdom. All of them work together to try to destroy you. As, As God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. Its desire is to to kill you. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Number seven, we were at that one last week. The triune God predestined, foreknew, and foreordained that his holy covenant people would always war against opposition. The opponents would include what I just covered, Satan and his angels, demons, peoples, nations, and rulers of this age who persecute his people, and so forth. Now, and unfortunately, ourselves. <laughs> I've met the enemy, and he is us. Let me just give a quick couple biblical examples of that, which we're going to go into more in lessons three and four. But Cain killed Abel when there was only, uh, you know, less than 10 people on the earth. It wasn't overcrowding. God raised up when, because Abel, the uh, the, uh, who had repented and, rece- and turned back to God. Uh, God raised up uh, Seth, who, was, who also repented and turned back to God, and his line became kind of the Yahweh worshipers in the earth, and Cain's line became the people of darkness. And that theme goes on all through the Bible. So, um, 
all, all the way through the Bible, there's always those who want to destroy the people of God, who are opposed to the people of God, and so forth. And Jesus didn't change that. In the Sermon on the Mount, his basic teaching about it means to be his follower, he promised us that if we desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we'll be persecuted. So that is always there. That And God, God is sovereign. He works all things according to his purposes. We need that opposition. Number eight, the Bible is a book of the kingdom of God. It contains the history of the kingdom of God in the earth, past, present, and future. It contains the laws and covenants of the kingdom. It contains a history of the covenantal kingdom people. It contains a progressive unveiling of the person of the king, our Lord Jesus Christ. It increasingly brings to light his ways, his heart, his character, and his kingdom purposes through his ecclesia, which Jesus said, I will build my ecclesia, compared and in the Old Testament, Moses built his ecclesia, and it means my called out people. So we will look at that uh, statement number eight in quite a bit of detail uh, in chapters uh, three, four, and five. Number nine, no person can have any ultimate fulfillment, purpose, or joy without the illumination of knowing and experiencing the king. That is the living word of God, Jesus Christ, uh, who is made manifest through the written word and by aligning one's life, character, and purpose with King Jesus' life. In other words, until you come to know uh, the living God through Jesus Christ, and experience the liberation of his becoming your king, setting you free from whatever uh, damage is done and beginning to rebuild by his tools of grace, uh, there's no ultimate purpose. You know, we're living in an epidemic of people who are, you know, last night I was watching on the news this kid, they were showing this kids who had killed someone and so forth, and he had those meth things all over his face and his body. We're, you know, ultimately, there's no purpose without Christ. We have enough material wealth and everything in our culture that lots of kids say, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to live the straight and narrow and do this and that and live right for a bigger house? For a nicer car? That doesn't have enough staying power in it. Either your life hasn't, see, if, you, if anyone's ever studied the philosophy called existentialism, what the existentialists say is we're not willing to admit there is a God. But we can't shake off uh, a product of being created in the image of God that we sense we have a purpose. So we're mad about that. That's existentialism in a nutshell is that I, I refuse to believe in God because I, that would mean that he has to be my Lord instead of me, and I will not give up being my own Lord. But I can't shake this sense that there ought to be something important for me to do. And so I'm mad at the universe. That's existentialism. Nihilism is an existentialism that takes it one step forward, says, I'm so mad at the universe that I'm going to destroy as much as I can before I destroy myself. And it's the philosophy of a lot of metal bands. It's a philosophy of, you can find it in a lot of art. You can, it's the philosophy of the drug culture. 
There's no, there's no ultimate purpose for me to center my life around, so I'm just going to destroy myself, and I want to see how much fun I can have on the way down and how much damage I can cause. Jesus came to give you an ultimate purpose and to center into a calling that involves your unique gifts, talents, and as you develop them and study, he will give you more unique gifts and talents and so forth. Um, where were we? So all other reasons for living are futile and frustrating. They miss the mark of God's creative purposes in and through his people, and they produce destruction and death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And sin is not what our cultures made it. We, are, we focus on the leaves of the tree. We make sin, drunkenness, or illicit sex, or uh, wearing the wrong clothes in some legalistic versions of Christianity and so forth, and all kind of nonsense. Uh, but sin, according to the Bible, has to be eradicated at its root, and the root is the desire to be your own God. The serpent said to Eve, you shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good and evil. Which is why we're having so little impact, because the average view of Christianity is to invite Christ in your life to be kind of a minor partner and to occasionally give advice when things get really bad and to bless you at, at all times. <laughs> That's really what we mean by the sinner's prayer. We mean, oh, Lord, I'm a sinner, by which we mean I've made a few mistakes, but I'm basically a good person. That's really what people are saying in their heart when they, because of the gospel we preach when they pray to receive Christ. They don't, and they mean, come into my life, sit in the backseat, keep your opinions to a minimum, or come into my apartment, don't, don't remodel, just dust a little, but don't tear the whole thing down and start on a new foundation, which the gospel is, he wants to tear the whole thing down and start on a new foundation, if you, if you start going through trials as a Christian and you start going, my God, these are hard trials. Is he trying to kill me? Let me just lovingly say, yes, that's the problem. Until you die, you can't have his life. There was exchanges made at the cross. He exchanged sin for righteousness. He exchanged his whole being to for your whole being. And until you get, die to your whole way of life and your whole attitudes and your loves and your interest and, and so forth, you're just standing at the doorway of Christianity, kind of surveying the landscape. And frankly, we've created a pretty good culture in Grace Christian Fellowship where people can do that for sometimes a year, two, and three. But my encouragement is, go ahead and dive in and buy the whole package. Lay down your life in every way. When he takes, brings you in the crosses, don't be like those Westerns where they're, oh, choo, you're, oh, oh, and you do like this dying act for 30 minutes and you tell everyone how hard it is to die. Uh, and, and, you know, just die quietly and thank God and move on. <laughs> He's trying to kill you because he loves you. Number 10, the whole Bible contains a progressive revelation of the mystery of the kingdom of God as explained clearly by Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Matthew 13 that I have listed there contains seven parables of the kingdom. 
Colossians 1 is all about how he transferred us into a new kingdom and so forth. The mysteries of Christ and his kingdom are presented clearly, plainly, and pervasively throughout every chapter of Scripture. We miss that because of our idea. Most of us read a little Bible here, a little Bible there, and we have proof text in our mind, and we build theologies based on a, a few verses and a few experiences instead of studying fully the whole thing and understanding what the church has taught fully through the centuries. And you don't have to be a great scholar to do that. The average, that's within the reach of the average Christian. Uh, his kingdom, the mysteries of Christ and his kingdom are presented clearly, plainly, and pervasively throughout every chapter of Scripture, yet in such a way that no one fully grasped their meaning or anticipated their fulfillment because God has had ordained that a veil lies over their minds of the seekers, over the minds of the seekers, until it is lifted to reveal Jesus Christ, who was obviously always the point. Now, when you read Scripture, you see all kinds of things that, that the people who wrote Scripture, even in some cases, and the recipients of Scripture were missing, even though once Christ has come in to take the veil off your heart and mind, you can see plainly. For instance, Abraham was called to, to sacrifice Isaac. And that is a foreshadowing of the father gave up his only begotten beloved son in whom he was well pleased. And when Isaac says, Lord, it says that, you know, father, where is the sacrifice when, when, the, when the angel commands him not to slay his son? The, uh, the son says, uh, father, you know, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says something that we most usually miss. God will provide himself the sacrifice. We think it means that God himself will provide the sacrifice, but it's actually a foreshadowing of Christ that God himself will be the sacrifice that God provides. So the Bible is full of things like that. There are around 50,000 pointers to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament none of which you can see until God takes the mystery off of your eyes through in a real, tangible, concrete, life-changing, radical encounter with Jesus Christ. So, um, God has ordained that a veil lies over the mind of the seekers until it is lifted in, in Christ who was obviously always the point. The mystery of the kingdom is Christ and Christ in us, the hope of glory. Thus, to be a Christian means to labor in the lives of other Christians until the fullness of Christ is formed. People say, well, gee, am I a project? Yes. The gospel is we're all a project. God loves you right where you're at, and he loves you so much that he wants to liberate you from addictions, sins, fears, uh, anything that's contrary to the nature of what he created you and intended you to be. He wants to heal the whole of you. And a, and a gospel that has less radicalness than that won't do you any good. I'm going to run over. Just tough it out. What a surprise. Uh, this is worth it. Number 11, the kingdom of God is the jurisdiction of God. 
and the people of God are the agent of the kingdom. The people of God, that's the church, are therefore supposed to be a nation within the nations, a city within the cities, a city set on a hill, a light within the darkness, many metaphors. And we're supposed to have separate and unique priests, government, culture, laws, language, economics, taxes, race, leadership models, philosophy of education, business purposes, ethics, and politics, etc. Now, in fact, one of the reasons that we can tell that the, Christ, the brand of Christianity that we have in America today is so unbiblical is because Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. Pagan, humanistic, anti-Christian people called the Republicans and the Democrats have in, in the Supreme Court and so forth have been, have been, about, have been uh, uh, able to produce laws whereby blacks and whites go to the same schools, uh, there's quotas to work in the same jobs and so forth, but you know what? They haven't been able to make them actually love and care for each other. And so when they have the chance, they go to separate churches and they don't live in the same neighborhoods and they don't hang out. But the early Christians, the churches were filled with Jews and Gentiles of every nation in the Roman Empire. And until we have truly integrated churches where blacks and whites love each other, then we've missed the racial component of the gospel. The racial component of the gospel is you're either born of Adam and Eve or you're born of Adam and Eve and you're reborn into Christ. And those who are reborn into Christ have got to work at loving one another. And until we have racially integrated churches, the world has a right to say, Jesus said, make them one so the world might know. The world has a right to say, your Christianity is nonsense. You don't really believe it. According to Jesus' prayer in John 17, the world stands there and says, you have all these $4 million white churches in the suburbs, and you have some big and rich black churches, of course, as well, uh, but mostly you don't mix. You only mix if the, if, if the civil government tells you to. But I'm saying that you, if you're reborn in Christ, you're of one race. And you better, you better work at getting, the, getting along and loving each other and serving one another here and now. So uh, there's some scriptures that you can read about from 1 Peter 2, 5, and 9 there at the end of point 11. I'm running out, I'm way past time and I want to get to point 12. So I'm just going to say that read those and understand those are a quote from, um, from Exodus 19, 5, and 6. You can write that in your notes. Now, here's a final clarification or caution, and I, I hope that you'll listen to this, even though I'm going to run over by about 10 minutes. Is it, um, of course, we started a little late, and lots of people came in late, and so I was frankly trying to catch some people up. Um, so I spent too much time reviewing last week's. So, um, so if you're mad at me, you can stole me later. Uh, in, as long as you do it in a loving manner. <laughs> um, the people of God are a primary agent of the kingdom, as we've been saying, but are not exactly completely synonymous or overlapping with the kingdom of God in at least two report, two report and inspects, respects. It's very important for us to understand this. 
Number one, the citizens of the kingdom never fully experience the kingdom in this life due to our sin and our finiteness. I always say people would still have relational difficulties in their marriages and in their families and in their workplaces, even if we had no sin nature, because our finiteness makes it impossible for us to communicate perfectly, and we have to work at it, right? And the kingdom of God is not uh, what the world thinks, where we go out and force ourselves on anybody or take control. The kingdom of God cannot be accomplished by by armies or or governments or anything like that it has to do with a body of people giving together giving themselves over to the cross in such a way as they're freed of selfish ambition self-glorification and so forth and they become the servant of all now this is important and i'm sad to say this but I have a number of good Christian friends, many of whom I grew up with in the things of the Lord, who have become wealthy and rich businessmen and so forth. And I have actually sat there and told them what we're doing for inner city poor. And this guy joined us. But I've uh, several of them have said, why are you wasting your time with that? Build up your business and make more money. I've actually been... <laughs> told that. Why are you wasting your time teaching reading in schools? And, and well, because one of the basic doctrines of Christianity is called the Imago, Imago Dei, Latin for we're made in the image of God. And when we meet, we meet adults all the time who can't read, who have all kinds of social, emotional, and everything troubles due to the, how they were raised and so forth. They're every bit as important and actually more important than me. And what the gospel is all about is that you pour your life out as a, as a drink offering to serve them. Now, none of us are perfect in that. We're, frankly, we're baby Christians. It's, it's taken years just to try to re, uh, study enough to reorient ourselves, but Jesus' view is the greatest is a servant. Who are you serving? Who are you give, giving? Freely you are given, freely give. Who are you paying it forward to? Secondly, the kingdom and purposes of God are always larger than the people of God. This includes using the people of God to bless all the earth. What God's ultimate goal is, is as he said to Abraham, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So, uh, next week we will get into uh, chapter 3, what was God's original plan, and we're going to survey from a covenantal purpose, focusing on the covenants of God and the key figures in the covenants of God. We're going to survey the, what, what Christians call the Old Testament, which should better be called the Hebrew Scriptures, and we're going to see that although people didn't fully understand it till after Pentecost, this kingdom of God idea was God's intention all along. Amen.